Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 7 August 2023. This will be lecture number five on our discussion of Alzheimer's disease in aging females. Remember, this is a biomedical portrait. This is the first one we're doing. So lecture five is here. Um, I'm really hoping we can finish this uh, portrait and move on to this next one. Uh, but if we don't, there might be one more left on this subject. And it is a very important subject, as I have indicated. So the likelihood that Alzheimer's disease is linked to a decrease in estrogen in the central nervous system because of a decrease in estrogen reception in the particular nuclei that we know are involved during the early stages of neurodegeneration in Alzheimer's disease is is a reasonable um, conclusion drawn from the premises that we've been working on, the validity of those premises, that is, finding evidence to be able to back them up. Now, in males, you have androgen reception because the the testosterone is the most common isoprenoid steroid hormone in males. And, of course, uh, 17-beta estradiol is very common in females. So the question has always been, what happens to all the testosterone in males because males don't go through menopause? And does that, if the testosterone is not dropping, yet men get or contract or acquire or present with Alzheimer's disease earlier than women. And the only reason that women are shown to have higher incidence of Alzheimer's disease is when they get older. Then they take over, dominate the number of people that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the age group is not very well defined, but most men, if they're going to get Alzheimer's disease, they're going to start showing symptoms by their 60s. And it's a rapid onset, and usually the disease takes them um, out within 10 years. Maybe they can last a little bit longer, but that's about the amount of time it takes for the neurodegeneration to end in death. With females, add another 10 years on both sides. Females may not developed Alzheimer's disease until the mid-70s or early 80s. But they, rather than taking 10 years to reach mortality, can can get far more severe in the disease and show the presentation that is normally recognized as Alzheimer's disease. Um, Cognitive skills decrease, memory declines into a smaller and smaller network where the sufferer, the Alzheimer's sufferer can sometimes not even remember um, their family members. And slowly but surely, the Alzheimer's disease um, takes the female sufferer into a situation where she's totally unaware of her surroundings. Now, that period of time, that the decline into the very severe state of presentation, uh, where it becomes a very severe neuropsychiatric disease, um, is probably no different than with males, but males have other diseases that are um, habitually 
enhancing the promotion of the presentation of Alzheimer's disease. And these would include cardiovascular disease and the multiple forms of cancer. So men tend to, when they, when they get of a certain age, all of the major diseases that ultimately will lead to mortality start to come on in series. And if Alzheimer's disease is set in that network of diseases, it becomes exacerbated by the other pathophysiological systems. And that's because of the major functions that are being um, rendered non-functional, such as in cardiovascular disease. And there you're talking about simple things like circulating glucose, circulating oxygen. Likewise, obesity, people who are obese, regardless of sex, male or female, if they're obese um, and they are they they start to develop the prodromal stages of Alzheimer's disease. That disease is going to be uh, much more um, active in a younger age, and it's likely that that disease, that uh, Alzheimer's disease, will um, will end in mortality earlier for the uh, great grossly overweight or obese population. So you see that the cofactors; these are what you could call somatic physiological diseases versus neuropsychiatric disorders. But obviously the somatic diseases, all of, all of that is based on pathobiochemistry. And so if a person's suffering from other kinds of diseases, say kidney failure, kidney failure is going to play a role in the severity of Alzheimer's disease because the Alzheimer's disease is related to such aspects of um, metabolism um, as what carbon source is being used for the neuron. And we covered that in the first and second lecture on this little vignette we're doing. Remember that switch from using white matter degeneration, degradation, and then running fatty acids through beta oxidation, synthesizing the synthesis of ketone bodies, acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and then being shuttled through the MCT into the neuron and that carbon source being used in aging females as they develop Alzheimer's disease. So that kind of effect on central metabolism, such as carbon source, that is bioenergetics, will play a role in the uh, progress and the higher levels of morbidity of disease. Okay, So we talk about uh, androgen receptors, which of course they will respond to testosterone. And then we talk about estrogen receptors, which are primarily E2 receptors. Uh, those are the um, alpha and the beta receptors. They're actually binding to 17 beta estradiol, right? To be specific about steroids we're talking about. So it's debated whether testosterone acts were, in the male is working through the androgen receptor or because there is a conversion of testosterone to 17-beta-estradiol by aromatase if it's actually the fact that the limited number of estrogen receptors in the male central nervous system then also are decreasing sufficiently so that the etiology of both diseases, male and female, are similar. Now, it's more likely that the testosterone levels that we say tend to peak and stay high in males for longer uh, into their um, 70s and 80s, if they live that long, then females after menopause and their estradiol levels in circulation and in the brain-specific parenchymal, parenchymal systems um, 
remember the testosterone could be converted via aromatase to estradiol. So if there's no reception for estradiol, it doesn't mean the testosterone is binding to the androgen receptor because the testosterone could be lowered because of its metabolism to estradiol, you see. Effectively, then, it does alter the testosterone concentration. And the testosterone is neuroprotective, which is still an argument that's out there for men. Then it could be that the aromatase is the key component that's limiting the amount of testosterone availability. Problem with that is looking for aromatase activity in humans uh, is very difficult because, you know, the kinds of studies that are necessary to conduct that, you're looking for enzymatic activity in cells. So it's very difficult to get a good bioassay on that. Some, there is some, there is some work done in that area um, with flow cytometry, with cells that are collected from central nervous tissue. But by and large, we do not have a good understanding of aromatase activity in the human central nervous system in the advanced aged population, except for autopsy. Of course, autopsy, you're getting uh, de dead cells. And so the amount of protein aromatase doesn't necessarily translate to the aromatase activity in the brain prior to uh, death. So that's the real issue there. Um, there are different pathological conditions between male and female. It implies perhaps that there are sex differences, and there are sex differences between male and female brain. And that's in respect to this neuroprotection I've been talking about for the last lecture or two. And it can be mediated, at least in part, by circulating isoprene sex hormones. And the most convincing evidence that links systemic loss of estrogen at menopause to neurological damage in the female is yet another um, pathophysiological data point, and that is there is an increased risk of major depressive disorder and general anxiety disorder associated with menopause in females. And prodromal MDD and prodromal GAD can be linked, not causally, but correlated to the early onset prodromal phases of neurodegenerative Alzheimer's disease, and to some extent, Parkinson's disease. Now, the predominant expression for tissues for the ER alpha, remember, now we're going to be getting out of the central nervous system. In the female is going to be the uterus, primary source of ER alpha, okay? You also have the pituitary gland with the highest levels. And then there is the liver. And then we start getting back into the brain, the hypothalamus. But then in descending order, bone marrow, and then back to mammary gland, then cervix and vagina. That's where you see a lot of estrogen receptor alpha expression. So if the expression is there, is presumed that's where the estradiol, something by the estradiol, is carrying out its function. One of its functions, again, is the control of the transcription, remember. So ER beta expression, on the other hand, is expressed in less numbers of tissues, but the predominant ones, again, female, ovary, 
lung. And there is some ER beta in the prostate in males. So ER beta, so that means it is a gonadal expression for ER beta. So ER beta expression is especially high in the ovary, exclusively in the granulosa cells. And so there have been interventions for estrogen-related diseases which target specifically the function of either ER alpha or beta. And those particular approaches are trying to tease out the differential physiological role of alpha and beta. And this is how some of the hormone treatment strategies are being developed for postmenopausal women to try to minimize side effects and enhance putative um, enhancement of, for example, central nervous system uh, acuity. Okay? So in ER alpha positive breast cancer cells, the androgen receptor has been shown to limit ER alpha mediated biological activity, including breast cancer. That suggests that if you buy into the competition between testosterone and estrogen in women, that might indicate a propensity to confer better response in patients who are positive for both receptors in the mammary gland. That, of course, would be the females. So the male breast cancer work, and there, it's very, very rare. You have to understand that male breast cancer is not a leading cause of death in males. It's not a leading cause of morbidity. Out of the breast cancer that gets diagnosed every year, male breast cancer is less than 1%. It's between 1% and 6%, but there is some argument whether or not some of those diagnoses aren't really related to other components of ductal carcinoma that are not strictly breast cancer in the male population. Okay? So we can talk about that sometime if you want to get into detail. There's some pathophysiological differences there. At any rate, for male breast cancer, in which the estrogen receptor alpha positive and testosterone mediated androgen receptor positive, positive patients. When you look for better outcomes compared with, say, ER alpha positive, AR negative patients, you determine that it is the testosterone mediated reception that's involved not the estrogen reception. So whether or not you have positive or negative estrogen receptors in the rare male breast cancer is relatively irrelevant. It's where the androgen receptor expression is clustered. So obviously that means that even when you have estrogen receptor in situ, in tissue, and you know that the estrogen receptor in females um, may be associated with either a protective or promotive aspect of carcinogenesis or breast cancer is considered promotive for those breast cancers which have estrogen as a component of their um, pathophysiology and etiology of disease, that when it happens in males, it does not confer the same result. It is the co-occurrence with a much higher level of expression of the androgen receptor, okay? So the androgen receptor essentially replaces the estrogen receptor 
for being a causal link for male breast cancer versus female breast cancer. I think that that's what I'm trying to say there. Now, there's more complexity to that for the, the androgen receptor in breast cancer because it's been shown that preclinically, the androgen receptor have been, has been associated with proliferative and anti-proliferative disease. All right. So again, remember all of the different possible gene transcription results from estrogen receptors. And I haven't even talked about androgen receptor acting as a transcription factor. Um, Formation transcripts, generating a transcriptome that becomes a proteome. But I've talked about it enough for you to understand that these isoprenoid receptors, once acting as transcription factors, do so with other transcription factors in association. And often the ER alpha or beta are involved in promoting or regulating the erstwhile other transcription factor mediated transcriptome and then ultimately subsequent proteome. You understand? So the flavor of the expression of the genes may be altered by estrogen receptor association or androgen receptor association. But it's those genes that are being expressed are not the same ones that are expressed directly from the AR acting as a transcription factor or the ER alpha beta acting as a transcription factor as the homodimer or heterodimer. Okay. So that's important because that's been found in prostate cancer as well. So there's a hierarchical clustering in female breast cancer that's directly linked with ER alpha. And in male breast cancer, if you have ER alpha, that sometimes comes up, but it has to be in association with the androgen receptor. So there's a clear difference between the two sexes for hormone receptor-mediated carcinogenesis. Clearly, it's testosterone-associated in men, and it's estrogen-associated in women. And again, think about the entire physiology of the two sexes. Ovaries are the main source of circulating estrogen in females. In males, testes will produce, because of the aromatase activity, only some 20% of the circulating estrogen, where the rest of the estrogen in the male is being synthesized in the adipose, in the brain, skin, and bone. And that is all from aromatase activity. Okay? So that tells you that the estrogen in the male is not carrying out the same physiological response as what estrogen is doing in the female, because it's not linked directly to gonadal production, number one. Number two, the receptor uh, concentrations don't line up for being a major player in human and male human reproductive health or male disease, since it's strict to male breast cancer, nor is it related to the relative concentration of the two isoprenoid hormones because you have this conversion of testosterone to estradiol, which basically limits testosterone activity. But it doesn't mean you now gain estrogen activity. 
because of the lack of the estrogen receptors, you see. So that's an important, again, these are logical um, puzzles almost that you have to tease out of the literature so that you understand the distinction and you're more clear in defining um, what you understand from this primary literature rather than kind of ruffling over it and suggesting, well, men also get breast cancer and yes, there are estrogen receptors in, in the um, and that in, in that disease consortium. And then you find out, yes, but even when they're absent, the male breast cancer proceeds and progresses. And on both occasions, you always had the androgen receptor robustly expressed. So what does that tell you? It tells you the androgen receptor is what's involved there, right? The risk is significantly reduced. Perimenopausal women treated with estrogen directly does suggest, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, that a systemic estradiol, that means in circulation, might have some influence on the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is again back to this neuroprotective role. So there's a similar reduction in risk that is, has not been demonstrated in postmenopausal women who are obviously typically older than perimenopause. And, and that's when they start on estrogen therapy. So this has come up with this, you know, quote, it's called critical time period hypothesis. And this is in estrogen biology, right? And that says estrogen treatment must be initiated early in relation to menopause to provide neuroprotection or protection from what? neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So remember the hormone treatments that are being strategized uh, in terms of pharmacotherapeutics. We call hormone treatment just HT, as the, the medical group does. But remember that HT is ET alone, E2 alone, that is 17 beta estradiol, or in combination with various progestins so hormone therapy can include estradiol alone or estradiol plus progestin. And the duration of that HT has a significant role on the risk of neuropsychiatric disease, such as major depressive disorder and general anxiety disorder. Now, again, this is, these are not experiments. This is clinical observations from psychology and from psychiatry along with uh, the medical doctor's prescription of drugs, what drugs, hormone therapy. So this is, a, this is what's going on right now in the clinics with hormone therapy. What is the strong evidence and when is it best to suggest as a pharmacotherapeutic to start adding estradiol as one of those um, prescriptions for postmenopausal women at what age? And again, for the express purpose of decreasing the progression for potential Alzheimer's disease. Not fully blown, but potential. This is right after menopause, right? So it's woman's much younger, right? When we're saying normally she would contract Alzheimer's disease. You understand? And this is all as this is all aspect around cognitive decline. So is hormone treatment 
useful for cognitive decline in aging females? That's still the question that's out there. Now, it's reported by menopausal women um, who are who are diagnosed with an increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, that that menopausal transition period is where the pharmacotherapeutic event is critical for titration of the potential for slowing down the progression of the disease. And this has been linked to tests for women where they're testing for attention, verbal, and working memory. Okay, so this has been looked at by the psychology and the psychiatry community. So understand how this works, right? So premenopausal women who have undergone an ovarectomy have an increased risk of developing major depression, depression disorder with dementia later in life. And this is the same thing you find in premenopausal women that have undergone a complete hysterectomy. So again, the argument is, are we talking about estrogen and maybe progestin being necessary for neuroprotection, particularly in premenopausal women? for later mental health, okay? So these are fine points, but they're fine points that we have to go through. Because again, this paper that we're going through is very thorough. And it wants you to understand all of these specific points. And I'm trying to bring them out to you by looking at other literature and comparing and contrasting. So hormone therapy use in women to alleviate symptoms of major depressive disorder and the potential for cognitive decline may prevent a risk for dementia. That's out there in the biomedical community. But, but always but, the data on hormone therapy for regulating future cognitive disorder and ultimately dementia in postmenopausal women is highly controversial. And that is because the study populations that these uh, cohorts have been, uh, the cohorts that we are being used have been worked with are very small, very limited, and prone to a great deal of subjective, low scrutiny evidence. So there is bias into this data set. What's the bias? The women are taking, for example, 17-beta-estradiol perimenopausally or just postmenopausally, and they're told that this may help them in cognitive acuity and may inhibit or slow down dementia. And then the follow-up on that is the following time, asking these women, do you feel like you're going through cognitive decline? And if they know they're on estradiol, they're more likely to favor the fact that that pharmacotherapeutic treatment is rendering them less cognitively impaired. Right? So that's the real problem here. What, where, is the, where is the true evidence lie? So hormone therapy, again, keeps on going back to 
it, they're trying to redefine it. The reason they're trying to redefine it is because the data is all over the place. There are plenty of, of people who have been prescribed hormone therapy, women who prescribed hormone therapy that have Alzheimer's disease progression. And women who have had no hormone therapy have similar Alzheimer's disease progression. So again, you ask the question, if hormone therapy had no effect on the progression of Alzheimer's disease in some cohort of women, and sometimes it does seem to have an effect, but in general, women who have no hormone th treatment have similar progression of Alzheimer's disease, according to age distribution and other biomarkers. And of course, other statistics, whether or not they're obese, whether or not they have other um, pathophysiological disorders, or whether or not there's any other comorbidities, when all of that is carefully scrutinized, you cannot find a clear answer to that question. Okay. So the critical time hypothesis is sitting out there, and it will continue to sit out there. When is the right time to start estrogen treatment? Now, another thing we're going to talk about eventually, and hopefully there's only one lecture left, remember that estrogen treatment in female postmenopausal is also linked for a high risk for developing multiple forms of female-associated cancer. So that's why the breaks are put on estrogen as a pharmacotherapeutic for all women after postmenopause. Most all women, perimenopause and postmenopause, excuse me. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 7 August 2023. This was lecture five on Alzheimer's and aging women relative to menopause. I am only going to do one more, I promise. And that will be tonight or tomorrow. Bye for now.